0: Welcome to a non-fiction story cast about people in Seattle who built churches and how they did it. I'm Cindy Safranoff, I'm the author, and this is Dedication, Building the Seattle Branches of Mary Baker Eddy's Church, a Centennial Story. Part 2, Episode 12, New Hymnal, 1932. At the start of the year 1932, the Christian Science Sentinel gave a progress report on the new Christian Science Publishing House in Boston. Someone walking past the construction site may not have seen much evidence of progress, but really the work was going at full tilt. Out of view, behind the stylishly painted, ingeniously removable fence around the site, Carloads of wood and steel sat ready for immediate use. They had just received the permit from the city of Boston to pour the concrete for the foundation. The $4 million construction project was beginning. Passersby would soon be hearing the hum of hammering, the whistles of the derrick bosses, the riveting of the structural steel, music to the workers most of whom had previously been unemployed. Music to those who have contributed. Music, too, to the publishing society employees who would soon be comfortably settled in their new home. It was also music to the city of Boston to have such a major construction project boost the local economy. Continuing progress was dependent on all the Christian science branch churches around the world keeping their commitments for monthly financial contributions. The Christian Science Publishing Society was proceeding as though the economy were as strong as ever, not only with its construction project, but also another unusually ambitious project that year. They published a new hymnal. The Christian Science Hymnal Project began in 1927, with the formation of a committee and a call for submission of new songs. The goal of publishing in 1932 had been announced in the January 11, 1930 Sentinel. This was the third hymnal in the history of the Christian Science Church. In the 1880s, the church used the Unitarian Social Hymn and Tune Book, and occasionally other hymnals and poem pamphlets. But recognizing an urgent need for a hymnal specifically for Christian scientists, for church and social use, in July 1889, a call was put out for songs suitable for a collection of Christian science worship. And in 1892, the first Christian science hymnal was published, which included several poems by Mary Baker Eddy set to music. A revised and expanded hymnal was published in 1910, including 241 songs, most of which were traditional Christian hymns. The 1932 hymnal marked a significant change in musical style, reflecting the innovative character of the movement and its increasingly international makeup. It included melodies from all over Europe, as well as from America. Most of the 130 new hymns were written by Christian scientists. Some were set to classical music, others to contemporary popular music. The remaining traditional Christian hymns were modified to better represent Christian science theology, to align phrasing with the musical accents, and to improve the poetry. The new Christian Science hymnal received favorable reviews in magazines and newspapers, hailed as a fine achievement and a great advance. It was seen as exceptional for its international style and remarkable for its insistence on the truths which the Hebrew prophets taught. The Kensington News asked, Is there any other religious body today whose members are so active in producing new hymns? One special edition was the inclusion of more musical settings of more poems by Mary Baker Eddy including one called Love, which began, Brood o'er us with thy sheltering wing, neath which our spirits blend like brother birds that soar and sing and on the same branch bend. The arrow that doth wound the dove darts not from those who watch and love. And the other called Satisfied. It matters not, what be thy lot, so love doth guide. For storm or shine, pure peace is thine, whate'er betide. William Rathvon, a Christian science practitioner, teacher, and lecturer who had once lived and worked in Mrs. Eddy's household, took the opportunity to share with readers of the Sentinel how important music was to the founder of Christian science how often workers in her household sang hymns together, how appreciative Eddie had been of her workers' faltering efforts to sing on key, and of the clear, sweet treble of our leader's voice, which once heard could never be forgotten. According to hymnal historian Sarah Rockabrand, it was normal in that era for Christian denominations to publish a new hymnal about every 25 years to accommodate changes in musical tastes for each new generation. So the 1932 revision of the Christian Science Hymnal was right on schedule. Purchasing hymnals was a significant investment for any church at any time. The Publishing Society had given Branch Churches two years' advance notice of the big expense. But even so, considering the economic depression and the extra monthly payments already committed to the publishing house building project, it was not an easy purchase. Fourth Church of Christ Scientist in Seattle needed more than a thousand copies to replace all their hymnals in their 1,200-seat auditorium and large Sunday school. The Publishing Society required churches to pay for their hymnal orders in full upon delivery. The bill for Fourth Church was $1,520. As delivery time drew nearer, Fourth Church found itself $320 short in its hymnal fund. They were behind in all their financial obligations. They were also $164 in arrears on their commitment for the new publishing house and had a $1,069 deficit for normal church operations. Their membership continued to grow. They welcomed 40 new members in June, but their Sunday collections were not covering their regular expenses. Furthermore, their members were failing to fulfill their pledges for the Boston construction project. The fourth church board took what steps they could to lower expenses. They renegotiated their mortgage payments to Washington Mutual Savings Bank. They canceled their building insurance policy to save money, then immediately reconsidered and definitely renewed. The board then decided that they simply needed to bring this cash shortage and large deficit to the attention of the membership, and the need would be met. Several special membership meetings were called to discuss the financial status of the church, where they heard from the chairman of the finance committee. The board introduced this financial focus by lovingly calling attention to a quote from Mary Baker Eddy. The right way wins the right of way, even the way of truth and love, whereby our debts are paid, mankind blessed, and God glorified. The discussion prompted a renewed desire to work toward dedication of their church. The $65,000 mortgage balance weighed heavily on 4th Church. In a letter to the members, the board wrote, We are all mindful of the splendid achievement of our membership during these months of seeming stress. We are also mindful that the infinite principle which has enabled us to do this is exhaustless, and if absolutely relied upon will enable us to complete our demonstration. The completion of our publishing house and the dedication of our churches are the important issues before us today. Aggressive mental suggestion would devise ways and means to distract our thought from these facts. Alertness to this coupled with the desire for a clearer understanding of God, will enable us to see these buildings free from all indebtedness. The members committed to meeting all of their financial commitments and dedicating their own church by the end of the year. To support this goal, Fourth Church started holding dedication-themed inspirational meetings on the second Tuesday evening of each month in their auditorium. All members are requested to attend, the first reader added with each announcement at Sunday services, and the board expected a hearty and continuous cooperation in working to this end. It was a privilege for members to contribute financially to the church. All delinquent members received a letter from the board the earnest students of Christian science have ample cause for upholding and rejoicing in this great movement. The countless members that have flocked to its churches have found relief from all kinds of troubles sin, sickness, fear, lack, etc. What a flood of joy comes to them as they feel its healing truth and then begin to realize that they have found a demonstrable principle which, when rightly applied, will solve all their problems. At this point, they are imbued with much enthusiasm and an awakened desire to loyally support the cause. Then, we need to work and watch that enthusiasm does not lag or grow sluggish, or that we do not accept all the blessings Christian science bestows upon us as a mere matter of course. We learn through experience that the way to keep this joyous enthusiasm and royal support of our great cause ever aglow is to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. This kind of work will wipe out all indebtedness and eliminate the possibility of deficits. We feel that with the effort being put forth, this amount will be entirely wiped out by the end of the year. Let us each lovingly assume this responsibility. Fourth Church, once again, had members anonymously sign slips of paper with individual commitments above their normal contribution. This approach was recommended for all branch churches by the directors of the Mother Church, as a commendable plan to defray accumulated bills when accompanied with prayerful scientific mental work. Some branch churches took a more conservative approach to hymnal finances. Seventh Church, which was also running an operational deficit, told the proactive and persistent publishing society sales agents more than once that they were not in a position to order hymnals at this time. They needed at least 400 copies in brown cloth, but they were holding off placing their order until they had all funds on hand. Their board reminded their members that the supplying of hymnals to our church is a specific idea in divine mind, complete in itself, an idea to be made manifest to all. Surely the words of our dear leader apply to this hour. Divine love always has met and always will meet every human need. In June, the members at Seventh Church started holding gratitude meetings. The week after they made that decision, the congregation of Seventh Church received a special gift of music from a visiting Christian science lecturer, Bicknell Young was guest soloist at the Sunday service. The auditorium of the relatively small Queen Anne Church was an intimate domed space with excellent acoustics for singing. Prior to his becoming a Christian science practitioner, lecturer, and teacher, Mr. Young had been a professional singer, famous for his baritone voice. He was in Seattle frequently to lecture and visit family members. His performance prompted a special letter of gratitude to Young from the board on behalf of all the members. But as for the new hymnals, it would be a few more years for Seventh Church. Fourth Church, shortly after placing their hymnal order, decided it was also time for a change in soloist for their Sunday services. The board held auditions and selected Albert Leroy Bellows, a prominent lyric and dramatic tenor who had toured America performing in a range of venues from opera to Chautauqua before arriving in Seattle and establishing a high-profile voice coaching practice for singers and radio announcers. Mr. Bellows helped open a new musical era for the Christian Science Church. Meanwhile, the Christian Science Monitor reported on hymnal manufacturing at the Kingsport Press in Kingsport, Tennessee. A full-page article with illustrations was published in the August 29th issue of the Monitor. This was the largest single order of hymnals ever produced. Five large presses ran 24 hours a day for two months to print the 410,000 copies of the first print run of the 640-page hymnal, and 50 sewing machines were dedicated to turning the pages into books. It was being made in cloth-covered hardback in blue or brown, black Morocco leather, a pocket-sized travel edition in leather, and a large-sized musician's edition. The title on the front cover of each hymnal, and the gilded edges of the deluxe edition was stamped with sheets of 22-karat gold. The 600 employees at the printing company in the Appalachian Mountains were fond of music, and as they worked on the hymnals, often sang or hummed the hymns, an anecdote reported in the Sentinel and Journal. A matching concordance to the new hymnal was also being produced to provide a keyword index, Christian scientists would be able to easily find just the right hymn for any occasion. As soon as the new hymnals arrived in early September, the Mother Church started holding hymn sings after the Wednesday testimony meetings for about 20 minutes to help local church members get familiar with the new songs, a practice they continued for at least several months. New visitors came just to participate in the joyful singing, Since many hymns were arranged for four-part harmony, singers were encouraged to practice the alto, tenor, and bass parts. Branch churches also held hymn sings. The Sentinel published letters about the new hymnal, sharing how it was being received. The new hymnal was described as a source of fresh inspiration and growth. The hymn sings brought the members closer together, and were instilling a greater sense of unity in the hearts of church members. There were tears of gratitude for this clear evidence of the progress of the Christian science movement. Members who had loved the 1910 hymnals so much that they were reluctant to accept the new hymnal wrote to the Sentinel about their change of heart to share how grateful they were for the expanded edition it was one more indication of the spiritual unity at Christian science churches. But most important to this religious community was the way this compilation of songs was bringing healing in its wings. The Sentinels celebrated how singing could aid in the healing of any kind of problem, including physical ailments. Hatred, anger, resentment, sadness, and discouragement vanish quickly while praising God and rejoicing, as did stubborn physical pain and suffering. Valda Henderson Brumagen explained in a Sentinel article called Song Services that no evil could linger when joy and song fill consciousness. Similar claims were made by many testimonies of healing published in the Christian Science Periodicals that made special mention of the role of hymns in the healing. Sunday school teachers were encouraged to explore the scholarship aspect of the hymnal with their students. On October 17th, The same day Boston church officials laid the cornerstone for the publishing house in an early morning ceremony as solemn as any for a church edifice, the Monitor began a feature series about the new songs in the hymnal. They shared about the authors, composers, traditions, and histories, the result of careful scholarship and research, written with the vivacity and human interest of good biography. Bright with Anecdote. In January 1934, a compilation of the Monitor articles were published as a book called Hymnal Notes, as a companion to the hymnal and concordance. As the new hymnals were arriving at branch churches around the country, the steel framing on the new publishing house was nearing completion. Regarding the superstructure work, the Sentinel reported, So noticeable to the workmen are the conditions of harmony and cooperation prevalent in this job that recently the project manager said, It is common knowledge in union circles of our community that the job is outstanding in respect to the harmonious relations with the union and all involved in the work. Back in Seattle, at least one branch church was following the example of the Mother Church in trying to hire local unemployed workers. Third church authorized Arch N. Torbett to hire a worker involved in the Man-a-Block plan. This grassroots plan that originated in Buffalo, New York, was in its second year of operation. A block captain knocked on every door and invited building owners to help improve the economy by offering at least two hours of unskilled work to a jobless man or woman. In theory, each city block could provide one full-time job to an unemployed person, a man a block. The goal was to create one million new jobs. An advertisement in the Seattle Times stated, There are thousands of idle men in Seattle right now. They need work, any kind of work. They need it not later on, but now. You can do your share toward giving these men work. You can help revive and stabilize business generally by improving and modernizing your property now, while prices of materials and labor are at low levels. If every citizen in a position to do so will have this needed work done, They can provide work for thousands of unemployed. They will release idle dollars, which will make for vastly improved business. They will help to dispel depression, gloom, and uncertainty. We're doing our part, and we're counting on you to do your part. Mr. Torbett was often involved in matters related to the building at Third Church. A prominent architect, he was in partnership with former Seattle City architect Daniel Riggs Huntington. The board appointed Torbett to hire their block man to do some work on the Third Church building at 30 cents an hour. It was a generous idea, but their experience was not a completely harmonious one. After only a few months, Third Church discontinued participation in the man-a-block program. Instead, the board authorized the building caretaker, Roscoe W. Holder, to get the right person to assist him whenever he needed help. Third Church began a new practice of singing hymns at membership business meetings. They sang while the ballots were being counted at the annual election meeting that fall. At a special meeting on church indebtedness, while they took an emergency collection, they sang, Onward Christian Soldiers! They closed the business meeting by singing Mary Baker Eddy's poem, Love. In December, Seattle Branch Church members saw the new publishing house for the first time, the fruit of their financial contributions. A 30-minute motion picture film provided them a visual tour. The board of directors of the Mother Church made the film available to branch churches to show at their business meetings. It would be another six months before the publishing house was fully paid for, which was a newsworthy event even for the Seattle Times. Seattle's leading newspaper quoted Boston official Charles E. Heitman at the 1933 annual meeting in Boston, hailing the sacrifices and unselfed efforts of those who have made possible the completion of the new publishing house without delay and without debt. It would be another year before the publishing house was completely done. When it was, framed pictures of the building were hung in Christian science reading rooms. This image of the fulfillment of their efforts was music to the dedicated Christian scientists in Seattle. But even when they were released from their monthly financial obligations for the publishing house project, it was no time to ease off the local boards told their members to continue their generosity for dedication of their own churches. Through all this, many branch churches continued making regular monthly contributions to Fifth Church, their local joint dedication focus, although sometimes contributions were only a few dollars. In an article in The Sentinel called The Harvest Song, Albain Neuer stated that Mary Baker Eddy could just as easily have been speaking to the current challenging times and the new hymnal, when, in 1906, she wrote, God hath thrust in the sickle, and he is separating the tares from the wheat. This hour is molten in the furnace of soul. Its harvest song is worldwide, world-known, world-great. Noise suggested that the new expanded hymnal reflected the unfoldment of truth and love in human consciousness. He concluded, Just as Christian science is becoming worldwide, world-known, world-great, the inspiration of the hymnal, enlarging its borders, should become, as a matter of course, worldwide, world-known, world-great. Is it any wonder, then, that in a time when the true sense of the brotherhood of man is urging the establishment of peace among nations, races, and classes, in a time when Christian scientists are working to separate the tares from the wheat, the unreal from the real, and are striving to bring out the truth of the spiritual universe through the understanding of God that knows no matter or evil, A harvest song of joy and gratitude is needed. A broader, deeper, mellower song. For as our leader writes, Science and Health, page 568, A louder song, sweeter than has ever before reached high heaven, a louder song, sweeter than has ever before reached high heaven, now rises clearer and nearer to the great heart of Christ for the accuser is not there, and love sends forth her primal and everlasting strain. Thanks for listening to Dedication by me, Cindy Safranoff. All events and characters in this story are as true and accurate as the available sources. All opinions are mine. To support and learn more about this groundbreaking research project and read my writing, visit CindySafranoff.com.